The little brown bat faces a lot of challenges, including public attitudes and a disease known as white nose fungus. Come along today to learn all about Montana's most common bat. Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We are coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of Northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Our producer is Colin Burkhart, and thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. I'm joined by Annabelle Amsweiler, who is a student who's been doing a lot of studying about white nose fungus in bats. And she's going to come on and join us today. Annabelle, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk today about Montana's little brown bat, and we think Montana's most common bat, and the whole thing about this white nose fungus disease that is occurring. So first of all, management of bats is challenging in part because of the public attitudes towards them. There's uh, 15 species in Montana. Is that right? 15 species? Yes. And they weigh from 5 to 25 grams. There's a lot of issues challenging them, but let's start off with this white nose fungus. Tell us about white nose syndrome, what it is, and how common is it in Montana? So white nose fungus is a cold adapted parasitic fungus. So what this fungus does is it lays in wait in a really cold, wet, dark environment and attaches itself to the bat. The fungus will eventually eat the bat's membrane and living Mm. tissue, which is really damaging to them, causing them to not be able to fly, and also causes them to use up their fat reserves for the winter. So what are we doing so far to manage this disease? What are we doing? What are some of the things we're doing? So a few states have developed vaccines, which have proven to not be very effective. But the main thing that we're doing is closing caves and trying to reduce the spread of the fungus across America. How much in Montana, how much cave exploring goes on? I mean, I know it's popular in some countries, but um, I mean in some states, but what, how co- popular is it in Montana? Um, it's fairly popular. We have quite a few large caves like the Lewis and Clark Caverns, mm-hmm. the Ice Caves, and uh, Azure Cave, which is one of the largest bat hibernating spots in the state. Um, there's up to two to 3,000 bats per winter in this one cave. Wow. Now, the white-nosed fungus, uh, one of the things we're worried about is that it's going to affect the bat population. And they just recently, it just recently came to Montana, right? Yeah. So it was first detected just this year in the cave I mentioned earlier, the Azure Cave. And in just one year, we've seen the population of wintering bats go from 2,000 to only about 1,000. Okay. And just so people know, this order of bats is called the Chiroptera. The family is the Microchiroptera. So the little brown bat is part of that that nomenclature there. Now, its diet, what's its diet consist of, this little brown bat that's flying around uh, that we see? (laughs) Um, Mostly, they hunt over water. So it's mostly mosquitoes, midges, caddisflies, moths, hoppers, beetles, um, sometimes even spiders. Okay, and they use echolocation. Tell us about that. Yeah, so with their echolocation, what they do is they make like a clicking or a squeaking sound. And when that sound hits a bug, it'll bounce back uh, to their ears and they can locate it based on how far away and how strong their signal is coming back to them. Okay, they're eating a wide variety of insects, as we mentioned. 
hoppers, small beetles, and even spiders. So mm -hmm. there's lots of food for them available. And now there's one thing being developed right now for a vaccine for the white nose fungus disease. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's been a few different vaccines created for the white nose fungus. It's distributed orally to the bats, but it has had limited success over in East, specifically Michigan. They only saw that it helped in the first year after being vaccinated, but then the subsequent three years after that, it really didn't have an effect on survival. Okay, well, let's, let's uh, leave the technical aspects for a minute here and go into some of the superstitions about bats. You know, there's kind of a negative attitude towards bats that some people have, and they almost look at them as spiders or rats, you know, the same kind of stigmatized group. <laughs> yeah. When you think about it, it's kind of understandable because if you were living in a cave or you were, you know, you were, you were not, you did not, not have a uh, established domicile and so on, and you're a human living back then, they're not the prettiest looking things. They look kind of kind of wacky, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they definitely look like mice with wings. It yeah, actually you know. in German, the German word for a flying bat is flittermouse. So oh, is that right? Let me darn. Well, now there's a couple of things we'll throw in a few superstitions here. So bats are symbolic of bad luck, especially while flying early in the evening. And if a bat flies into a house and then escapes, there will be a death in the family, Annabella. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> Kill the bat before it escapes and everyone will be safe. Well, that's a, okay. And in many paintings from Western Europe in the Middle Ages depict the devil with bat wings. Later, bats received even more bad publicity when they became linked to Count Dracula and vampires. Mm. And let's talk about this one superstition that was actually tested. So in Western Europe, there existed an unfounded superstition that if a bat fell on a woman who mostly had long hair back then, the bat would become so entangled in her hair that the hair would have to be cut off just to pull it out. And so that's the superstition. I don't know what people think of that. I mean, I think I've heard, you know, when I was a kid, I heard things about bats getting tangled in hair. But in 1959, this superstition was actually so believed that the Earl of Cranbrook took it upon himself to test the veracity of the superstition. He used four species of bats and three brave volunteers. He deliberately entangled the bats by thrusting them into the hair. But on all occasions, the bats were able to escape without becoming entangled. So he proved that it wasn't a problem. That's awesome. <laughs> so go out there and let your hair fly. <laughs> the other thing that people don't realize so much is how much mortality there is by wind turbines of bats. Across the country, it's up to a million bats a year killed by wow. wind turbines. And I don't know if you've ever seen this happen, but I mean, we do have some eastern Montana. Mm -hmm. And fatalities are highest during autumn migration and on nights with low wind speeds. Some bats can be attracted to wind turbines, increased risks of impacts to bat populations. So... Wow. That's another thing that there's complications when you get to alternative forms of energy mm -hmm. that can affect the environment. Yeah, and if a million bats are dying from the wind turbines and six million of them have died from white nose fungus, the Whoa. bats are really taking a, a hard, hard hit. That's a good point. So tell us a little bit about rabies in bats. Oh, yeah. So rabies is a fairly common disease in bats that is spread through saliva, so usually a bite. I don't think there's been very many cases in the Flathead County. There was in a youth camp down along Flathead Lake. There was some rabies. I don't know if anybody got it, but it was actually reported <laughs> mm -hmm. in the bat population and so on. So, so it does occasionally happen. The other thing that I wanted to mention about bats is it's very challenging because people just, like we said, they, they have this weird attitude about bats because mm -hmm. they just don't look cuddly. It's not something you'd want to cuddle, you know, when you look at a bat. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the other things that, that we talk about is is trying to increase people's acceptance of bats. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of the uh, bat nesting boxes. Mm -hmm. Tell us how they work. Oh yeah, so these uh, bat nesting boxes are usually predominantly used in the winter or in the heat of the summer. 
I'm not really sure how they're constructed, but they can usually house up to 10 to 40 bats. And they're actually a really good option if you want to help bats against white nose fungus. It hasn't been really detected in any bat houses that okay. we've studied. I have a couple of bat stories for you. Okay. <clears throat> and you probably have too been out in the woods working with the Forest Service, but one of them, my great aunt Doris had a Montana Huffine Museum east of Kalispell, and she called us up one day and said, there's, there's a snake or something in my garage, and it just keeps <laughs> trying to get out, and I, I'm afraid to go try to let it out. I went out there, and it was actually a bat, but it was, it was, it was making like little sounds and stuff, and it almost sounded like a snake. Have you ever heard a bat make a sound like that? No, I haven't. I've usually only heard like a, a squeaking or a clicking, squeaking. but okay. that, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, well, we went out and figured out it was a bat. And <laughs> <laughs> but people, people get kind of creeped out if they think a bat's also in their house. Mm -hmm. So you, you really want to try to avoid that. The other thing uh, we wanted to talk about a little bit is what about the future? What are some of the things in the future that we're looking to do more of to conserve bats, especially this little brown bat? What we're mostly doing across the, the nation is closing caves to restrict the spread, but mostly there's not really much we can do. We have actually seen an increase in survival rates in the eastern side of the United States where the fungus was first introduced to America. These bats are actually evolving to live with the fungus. So the bats over there are getting just a little bit heavier, a little bit fatter, and they are getting fuzzier because the fungus can't grow on their fur. It can only grow on their open skin. Well, so. well, that's neat. One other spook, kind of a spooky experience I have with bats <laughs> as we close the show out here is we were in a basin cabin in the Bob Marshall Wilderness area, and we were splitting up on where we were going to sleep that night. And I, I just figured, oh, I'll just sleep out on the porch, you know, mm -hmm. and it's warm out. So these bats started dive on me. They came at me, like, right at dusk, and they're going to go, and they come back. <laughs> if I had a way to kill this doggone thing, I would. Because, you know, I was getting a little worried because I didn't know whether it was going to try to bite me or not because yeah. it was coming right down. And, uh, and then I guess I realized for the first time that they roost in these lodgepole pine trees that were around the cabin. That's and crazy. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So give us a last word about the brown bat. I think that they are very important to our ecosystem, and I think that we should do everything we can uh, to help them out. Well, that's probably a good way of putting it. <laughs> and let's hope that they don't get tangled up in our hair. Okay? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Won't be a problem for me. That's all the time we have for this episode of the FBCC Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fraley, and I'll see you next time.